0: On ABC Radio,
1: this is The Big Fish
0: with Scott Levi.
1: Ahoy there, welcome aboard another action-packed episode of The Big Fish. A little bit of habitat restoration to kick off the show because habitat makes fish happen. It's Clarence Clearwater Revival with Ozfish Unlimited. Stinkers back, digging in the doldrums and bitey monsters in the sand. Under Our Feet with Alex Bellissimo on the northern beaches of Sydney all coming up on The Big Fish. the big fish and the motto for the show is habitat makes fish happen and the crew at OzFish Unlimited that brilliant lobby group for, for recreational fishing a not-for-profit community group for habitat restoration are really rolling up their sleeves or well, should I say rolling up their pants <laughs> Ryan Lungu program manager for the New South Wales Coast OzFish Unlimited good morning G'day, Scott. <laughs> Rolling up our trouser legs, I guess, That's or right. putting on our waders because it's so cold. Uh, some great projects underway in New South Wales, uh, where our listening audience is to the big fish. Let's we'll start in the north and work our way south. You're doing some stuff on the Clarence, I believe, a beautiful river, huge river system. Uh, east Eastern cod, the rare Eastern cod coming back, which is great. Hopefully, the floods didn't knock them about too much. Um, the fires, uh, the the brilliant bass fishery. I mean, some of the best big wild bass upriver, and then incredible fisheries down into the into the salt water. Uh, tell us about uh, the the projects on the Clarence.
0: Yeah, certainly, Scott. We do love our big bass in the Clarence there, and also the eastern freshwater cod. Uh, Ozfish has done a lot of work since the bushfires in riparian restoration up there on the Nimboida River, but. This particular project that we're looking for volunteers for at the moment is a citizen science water quality monitoring project that we're doing in partnership with the Department of Planning and Environment, New South Wales Government. What we're looking for is 20 volunteers. So this is a call out to people to get involved. We want them to go out after rainfall and collect water samples. Uh, Now we're going to test these water samples for turbidity. And for those that don't know, turbidity is the cloudiness or murkiness of the water. So it's an indication of runoff into the water. And we probably all know that the clearer the river is, the better it is for fish and for the entire ecosystem in there. So we really want to determine where the runoff is coming from. So this might be, you know, nutrient runoff from agriculture. It might be erosion that's caused from multiple reasons. But so we've got 20 sites. And so over three months, we want to go out after whenever it rains so within 24 hours after it rains and go and test the turbidity at these sites turbidity sorry and yeah we're going to see if we can find some sources to work on to reduce the nutrient runoff into the into the river there
1: you need that old blues guy to help you muddy waters
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, well, we're looking for the opposite, aren't we? We're looking for that (laughs)
1: Creedence (laughs) Clearwater. You're looking for
0: the... That's so good. You're looking for the Clarence Clearwater revival. That's the one, Scott. That's the one. That's so good.
1: It's The Big Um... Fish with uh, Ryan Lungu, the program manager New South Wales Coast. We're talking about the Clarence River uh, Citizen Science Water Quality Project. I was reading some really interesting science. I think it might have been in Fly Life, the the great uh, fly fishing magazine, about turbidity caused by um, dairy farming in New Zealand, which is a real problem because they, they set up this amazing experiment where they had a, a grid using um, laser tracking and they set it up in the wild in a pool with a, a big rainbow trout. And then uh, as the water clarity decreased, they, they tracked how far this fish moved to intercept food. So when the nymphs come down, and when the nymphs come down, the little galaxids or whatever they were feeding on um, they would track each take. And as the water quality dropped, the fish moved far less and therefore got far less food because they're real uh, eyesight feeders like the bass and the, the cod. And I'm I'm thinking it might be a similar scenario. I don't know if they, they act the same way in the, the clear water, but the clearer the water, the further they could, sight-feeding predators could find their prey.
0: Yeah, that's 100% correct, Scott. And also... Like the clearer the water is, right, the further the sunlight can penetrate down to the bottom of the river. And that's where you see grasses grow as you get down to the saltwater areas and the other other habitat up north. And this is essential habitat for breeding grounds, for baby fish, for food, for other fish. And so, yeah, you've pretty much summed it up. Clear water is the go. It's better for fish, which is better for us as fisher people. Um, we're going to have a training seminar on the 17th of August. So that's this this coming Thursday at Grafton District Services Club. So anyone that's interested, we're still, we need some people up the top of the catchment. It's not too hard to find some people down there at the bottom in Yamba, but we're really after some people up at the top of the catchment. So if you can make it down to the Services Club on Thursday, jump on the OzFish website to register or else just reach out to us through the website. And um, yeah, we'd love to have you on board as a citizen scientist.
1: All right. We better play a bit of credence for you for the Clarence. <laughs> river r- <laughs> clarence river clearwater revival um we're speaking with ryan lungu program manager for new south wales coast for OzFish unlimited the, the brilliant uh, not-for-profit habitat restoration organization and uh, we're moving our way down the coast so that's the clarence river a great citizen science project so get along to that information session and put your hand up to help uh, improve the health of the river. Uh, Let's stop at Lake Macquarie now because this is one very near and dear to your heart and it's also a habitat restoration program. What are you doing there?
0: Yeah, well, that's right. Well, we've just wrapped up restoring some salt marsh at Lake Macquarie there, Scott. And salt marsh is another habitat that's essential and critical for juvenile fish. And so we all want places for juvenile fish to breed and grow because they're the things that our monster flathead feed off, which we all love about Lake Macquarie. And so we worked with uh, Landcare New South Wales, or the local landcare group there in Lake Macquarie, as part of our partnership funded by the Wreck Fishing Trust, which is your licences at work. Um, and we planted 850 species along the shoreline there, removed weeds and removed rubbish with a good 25, 30 volunteers. It was a great day out. All of our work's driven by volunteers. We can't do anything without the wrecked fishers, the passionate wrecked fishers who are out there protecting and restoring habitat. And so simply by working on this part of salt marsh, which might seem like a small thing, but it kind of extends out, so if we can fix up one pocket, then it's going to grow to another. and our salt marsh copper hard wrap it, we've lost so much of our salt marsh habitat because it's what comes in usually the closest to humans, which makes it challenging for it. So salt marsh comes in behind the mangroves there and borders usually along human settlements, so it ends up with litter on it, ends up getting driven on, and then it gets infested with weeds and whatnot, but it's punching above its weight for habitat like we've lost a lot of it but it still feeds so many of our juvenile fish and so ultimately if we want more fish in the lake and bigger fish we need to protect these areas of so much which is exactly what these odd fish volunteers have done at lake macquarie it's just fantastic to see people out there rolling up their sleeves and planting trees for fish
1: yeah it's amazing isn't it and how's it working is uh, is it coming back is the work productive
0: oh certainly look it takes years really to see the 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 positive results but you know just by having a cleaner area around the lake it impacts on people's minds about how to treat you know the lake and the surrounding vegetation and yeah it ultimately impacts water quality too in the same way we're talking up in the clarence this salt marsh will filter any runoff and um it'll stop erosion into the lake and yeah it's just a it's a beautiful thing salt marsh it doesn't look like much people often get confused by it that's why they drive on it and dump litter on it because it looks kind of swampy but it's just a variety of beautiful um, brushes, sedges, reeds and grasses. And yeah, like I said, it's like a baby fish nursery, which we definitely need to get those big fish.
1: Yeah, this is a, a massive body of water too, an incredible fishing place now that it's a recreational Fishing haven and the nets are out. I mean, the the number of fish in there just phenomenal, and uh, the the tail of their catching on the beaches north and south of, of the entrance to Lake Macquarie now are just phenomenal. I think they're linked to to the numbers that are, are growing really big and fat inside the lake, and when they do their their spawning run north, I reckon that uh, the lake is feeding you know our, our offshore fisheries as well. So being a, a place that's protected is is great. But um, what part of the lake are we talking? Because it's the biggest saltwater um, coastal lake uh, in Australia, isn't it?
0: That's right. It's a big one and there's a lot of work to do, but we were working specifically on Stiles Point at Rathmines there. Um, but we're looking to work wherever we can around the lake, if anyone. We've got a great Osbish chapter in Lake Macquarie. It's full of passionate wreck fishers, people who love getting together and talking about habitat and then getting out there and rolling up their sleeves and doing it. So if this sounds like you, be sure to jump on the website, join up and you'll get notified about the next meeting. But, yeah, we've got a lot of work to do in Lake Macquarie. We're really excited. Um, We're going to talk about Pimp My Jetty a little bit after this, but we're rolling that out in Lake Macquarie too. And, um, yeah, watch this space because we're restoring habitat up and down the coast and we're just getting better and better at it.
1: And here's the thing. I know some of those people you're talking about uh, who are really good fisher folks, women and men who can catch them in a bucket so when you do join Ozfish and become a volunteer to restore salt marsh or um, monitor the clarity of the Clarence um, and all you need is be able to carry a bucket to do that apparently I was just reading your press release <laughs> you also you also by osmosis absorb all the good fishing spots you know, you're side by side with these people fixing the habitat and you say are oh, you getting any you're getting any? <laughs> oh, yeah, you've got, a, got some nice flathead the other day. Oh, yeah, where was that?
0: <laughs> that's right, that's right. And you'll know where the good habitat is because you'll be in there restoring it yourself. And as we, anyone that knows much about salt marsh will know that the flathead are hanging around the edges of it just waiting for those juvenile fish to dart out. So if you're there on the last couple of hours of the low tide or the first hour of the incoming tide, then you're going to be right in the zone of where you want to be.
1: We're speaking with Ryan Lungu, program manager of New South Wales coast, and we're working our way down the coast. We've been to the Clarence, we've been to uh, Lake Macquarie, and now we're heading to Sydney uh, with this Pimp My Jetty idea, which I think was very successful in Western Australia. That was where the pilot program was, and I, I could be wrong, but I know it's it's working gangbusters there. To see the the growth, to see the um, wonderful vertical habitat it's created, it's it's been a winner, hasn't it?
0: Oh, it sure has, Scott. Yeah, it's doing really well over there in West stores. I think we've got about 60 structures installed on private jetties over there, and our volunteers have been monitoring the growth on these ropes, and they're doing exactly what we wanted them to do. So what we're doing is getting access to people's private jetties, so we need people to put their hands up. And then we're just hanging a bit of natural fibre rope off the jetty into the water with a bit of wood um, to keep it in place. But what happens is the shellfish, um, like the mussels and kelp and sponges, will all cultivate onto the rope and start growing there because a lot of the available surfaces for them to grow on have been taken over by algae due to increased nutrients in the water um, over in West Oz, but also in Sydney Harbour and Lake Macquarie. And essentially any extra habitat we add, any structures we add, is going to be better for fish. And so, yeah, hanging these rope structures off private jetties is going to attract these beautiful things that fish love to feed on, which is just going to make fishing better.
1: Yeah, and you don't have to have access to that jetty if you've got a small boat, you know, casting into it is the way to go. Isn't It's always funny, the people on the jetty are casting out as far as they can and the people in the boats are casting in as far as they can. But, <laughs> That's right. You know, It's really creating these fish palaces, isn't it? Incredible habitat full of uh, every, every sort of fish.
0: That's right. Look, if it's your jetty, then you know that you're going to be getting better fish in there. And if you're one of the volunteers involved in installing these, you're going to know where they are and where to throw that lure from your boat. But um, what we're up to in Sydney and Lake Macquarie is at the very start of the project. So we've had our volunteers, our Sydney chapter and our Lake Macquarie chapter, both designing how they want these ropes to look like on the structures. And now we're calling out for jetty owners. So if you... Have a private jetty either in Sydney Harbour, somewhere around Sydney Harbour or in Lake Macquarie. Please get in touch with those fish because we'd just love to help you improve the fishing on your jetty there and help the entire ecosystem.
1: Yeah, I was reading your research. Coastal development has seen over 50% of Sydney Harbour's natural shoreline lost and with it the quantity and quality of fish habitat, the project will help to return some of that habitat by utilising the abundance of private pontoons and jetties lining the harbour.
0: That's the idea. The, the more habitat, the more fish, you know, and like we can, it's not going to happen overnight, Scott, but if we want fishing to be like it was when we say our grandparents were talking about the fish that they were catching, then we've got to start now, start improving habitat. And, you know, in the decades to come, we can see those numbers come back because, you know, without habitat, without food, there's not going to be these fish. And, you know, the more we add, then, you know, it's up to us to do it, as, particularly as recreational fishers. It's such a simple win for us to get out there, and give back and restore a habitat for the sport we love.
1: And the iconic fish of that estuary, and there's people who are, are regulars on this program uh, chasing them, and uh, I've, I've done it myself, is is the kingfish. And oh, when yeah. you're talking to Stephen Gaynor on the fly boat or, or to uh, Craig McGill, you know, the, the estuary charter fishers and all the other charter fishers there, you'll go out there and you'll find a lonesome uh, yacht mooring with a thin bit of rope below it, and there'll be 10 kingfish right around that piece of rope. So you can just imagine how many will be brought to these these natural fibres. And, and there's no pollution with this, is there?
0: No, that's right. We're doing it as clean as is, is possible. And that's every, with everything we do in our work at Ozfish. And you're right, mate. It's the kingfish that are going to be attracted to these structures. And everybody wants to know where they are.
1: Well, they'll be under every jetty if, if, uh, <laughs> if they're all, all pimped. Do you think people will go for this in Sydney? I mean, they're, they're, you're talking about some fairly rich folk. Malcolm Turnbull's got one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We should hit him up. Well, we've been doing a bit of a letterbox drop around there to see um, to see if um, we can find some Jews. We haven't got any on Woosley Road there yet, but um, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> who knows? Like, everyone loves to fish. It doesn't matter the size of your boat or how expensive your gear is, really, without habitat, there's not going to be fish. <laughs> and with more habitat, then we're all going to enjoy the sport more and more.
1: And the thing is, too, that around those moorings and and around those jetties, if there are kingies hanging around that new habitat created by the... And it's all natural stuff, isn't it? Hessian rope and wood, it's stuff that can't hurt the environment. Hooking them will be one thing, but pulling them out is uh, a totally different story.
0: (laughs) That's true, that's true. They'll be a lot heavier when they come out, hopefully.
1: (laughs) Well, you just won't be able to stop them, will you? They'll go straight into that structure and uh, see you later.
0: That's the idea. That's the idea. And that's just what's so beautiful about AusFish and about the work we do and the volunteers who get involved, Scott, is that we're restoring, you know, the environment and we're also improving fishing. And, you know, it doesn't get much better than that.
1: Now, it's such a clever idea with that um, stat that 50% of Sydney harbour's natural shoreline habitat has been lost due to development. And uh, this is a very simple, effective, um, you know, non-polluting way to bring some of that habitat back because we we think about what it looks like on top of the water but we don't think about what's underneath and this is bringing back that beautiful stuff and there'd be soft corals and things that would probably take hold on this as well mussels uh oysters uh, you name it it'll grow won't it and they filter they filter the water don't they
0: that's right so it's also improving water quality it's not just food for fish Uh, all of these things will filter the water improve water quality in the harbour. And as we talked about up in the Clarence and and in Lake Macquarie, water quality is just key to the health of the system.
1: Uh, Just fantastic what you're doing, Ryan. Thanks for taking us through some of the coastal projects. And we always catch up with your inland chapter people too, people like Ann Mitchie who's doing incredible things on the New England Tableland and and, uh, the Northwest planting trees for fish. I mean, she's just a, a hero in my eyes. Um, the work you do is just great. And, uh, so there's Pimp My Jetty in Sydney. Um, I don't think we'll play a song about pimps. There's uh, <laughs> salt, salt Marsh at Lake Macquarie. I don't know what we could do there, but we can certainly play a song for the Clarence River Citizen Science Water Quality Project, uh, the Clarence River Clearwater Revival. Let's play Credence Clearwater Revival and Green River because we want it to turn from a green brown river to a sparkling crystal clear river.
0: I love it Scott I'll turn it up and thank you so much man. it's been a pleasure to chat with you
1: good on you Ryan keep up the good work and all the volunteers beautiful it's the big fish
0: Big Fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio.
1: And coming up on the Big Fish, stinkers trapped in the doldrums, but he went fishing anyway, even though he knew he wouldn't catch any, and got one hell of a shock, caught up in the middle of a huge explosive bust-up. We'll share that story with you coming up on the Big Fish and digging into the past with offshore archaeologists and discovering some amazing evidence of our first Australian's fishing On Broughton Island. And Alex Bellissimo has worms. All coming up on The Big Fish. Killer Quentin and Bloody Mick went fishing out west for cod. They took
2: Reshi along as their spiritual guide. He was known as the Jam Tin God. The trek had been planned for six long months and all was now in order. They were ready to go to the great beyond, just north of the Queensland border. With a thousand yabby and a mile or more of worms, they had the bait to lure the fish and meet them on equal terms. For the cod that come from the great beyond near the never-go-dry lagoon are the hardest cod in the world to catch. They don't waltz to the fisherman's tune. Well the four-wheel drive was sardine-packed, the trailer stacked ten-foot high with boats and tackle and food and grog. The boys weren't going to go dry. They got to the river at the crack of dawn and eerie mist on the water. The jammed tin gods stood up and proclaimed, bringeth the lamb to the slaughter. They set their lines, they made their camp, then killer opened a beer. He drank a toast to a healthy catch and said, tell the cod we're here. Well, a tinkering bell was the first alert that the fish were on the bite, but the lion hit the water springer and all and vanished out of sight. Ten more went as a frenzy began. There was little the boys could do. There was just no chance of grabbing the lines or their hands would be cut in two. The rot went on for three long days. The party was spent to a man, except of course for the jammed tin god who had one final plan. So they hooked the carcass of a fly-blown ewe to the anchor from one of the boats. The sheep had been dead for a good two weeks and stank like a thousand goats. They secured the lot with a length of chain to an old rusty plough by a tree. So the jammed tin got off the cod, breaks out, he's far too good for me. Well, they whistled their way to their sleeping bags. It was a jovial fisherman's choir. Then Quentin sang some Al Jolson songs by the flickering light of the fire. They drifted off to the land of Nod. But soon awoke in fright as the murderous sound of a fish-drawn plough came thundering through the night. The ploughs headed straight for the camp, the chain was glowing red. Gum trees snapped like matchsticks and the boys thought they were dead. But bloody Mickey cracked the whip and said, uh, Quick, get in the truck. We can catch this sucker with half a chance and, you know, give it an ounce of luck. So they followed the plough for an hour or so till the fish had finished its run. Then they tied the chain to the four-wheel drive and the battle had begun. Killer jumped in the driver's seat and with a look of satisfaction, said the bloody cod's as good as caught. get ready for some action. Well, the engine roared, the tyres spun, the boys were pushing hard. The sun came up and the sun went down. And they'd gone for it just a yard. But they inched ahead, the cod was beat, the boys let out a cheer as this Moby Dick of the Inland Sea, he started to appear. With a mouth as big as a block of flats, there was nothing he couldn't swallow. He was 40 foot from lip to gill with plenty more to follow. Now killer was clocking up overtime, the tyres were all but bald, while the others watched as the fish came out. And the river began to fall. And all across the countryside the rivers were running dry. From Mungandai to Shepherd, and the folk were asking why. The darling was barely a trickle. The Murray ran hardly a drop till the PM flew in from Canberra and he begged the boys to stop. See, drought had hit the country bad and they'd finally found the cause. So the boys cut loose that super cod to national applause. The river levels rose again, the tragedy averted, the fishing party headed home, a trifle disconcerted. Now they'll tell you they've captured some big cod since, but the biggest without a doubt was the monster they caught, but had to release to save the land from drought.
0: The Big Fish, with Scott Levi on ABC Radio.
3: Here comes Stinker with his fishing tips. Some hot advice for your fishing trip. Where to find him? What's the bait?
4: Are you catching any, mate?
1: Good morning, Stinker. Uh,
4: G'day, Scott.
1: You've got the doldrums and you've been involved in a dig. We might start with the doldrums. First, I believe you just couldn't help yourself. You went out anyway.
4: Oh, Scott, I've mentioned on this program, I don't know how many times, that for me to, to catch the beautiful snapper that I've been catching for years and years, um, I've got it so worked out that I, it's like going to a supermarket. Well, nearly, not quite. Not quite like going to a supermarket, but I've got, I've thought it all out. My experience tells me where and when to go and how to do it and ah oh, look it's only after years and years and years have I have I finally come come to a resolution that will pretty much guarantee me these beautiful big snapper and all I need is a southerly wind a bit of bump and pre- well a, a bit of bump like about a two meter bump and then. Um, a change of tide, preferably, but not necessary. So they're the three things. If I can get those three things in order, I'm catching fish. So what's happened in the last four weeks? Absolutely nothing. So if the sea has been as flat as a flounder. The wind has been from the west or northwest. just um, <laughs> Nothing, absolutely nothing that I need to happen has happened. And I'm sitting, waiting, waiting, and I'm looking at the bombsite every single day and I'm looking at the clouds, I'm looking at the sea. I said, It won't be long now. Well, after that, I said, Blow it. I'm going fishing anyway. In my spot, although the conditions are wrong, there was a northwesterly wind, the sea was Beautiful, flat sea. There was a little ripple on the surface, but nothing special. And off I went, knowing that I wasn't going to
1: catch a thing. <laughs> well, you've got to keep your hand in. It's like practice, isn't it? You go through the motions and you, you know that when the conditions do turn, you'll be able to, to turn a scale as well. We're talking to John Clark Stinker, to his mates. And Stinker, you've had a bit of fun, though. We, we mentioned last week you were going on an archaeological dig, way out to Broughton Island. And you also told a great story about Kerosene Tin Jim, the the Greek fellow who lived on the island like a hermit for 49 years who would tell people uh, he'd buried his his treasure somewhere behind the hut and he couldn't remember where. And then they'd dig his vegetable patch for him. He'd say, thanks for that, and he'd plant his watermelon seeds. It wasn't that sort of dig, was it?
4: That's right. That's right. Yeah, he was a very clever man. Uh, and Jimmy Cara, George, yep. Uh, oh, gee, I, I didn't get to meet him, but I certainly wish I did. But, look, it was such a pleasure, a privilege for me to go over to Broughton Island last week and be invited by National Parks and Wildlife, the local, local my folk, and archaeologists of Sydney University. And so off we went. Well. Wow. They had been over there digging for a week before I arrived on the island, so I didn't have to actually dig. All I went to do was to have a look what they had found. Well, what they had found was extraordinary. The evidence of Aboriginal people being on Broughton Island has never been in question as far as I'm concerned. But it just, oh, what I saw and what they've achieved Um, it sort of makes it so much um, special for me to go over there and realise that this place was not only somewhere that they'd visit, but that that somewhere they spent many, many years living there, that's for sure. There's a a very shallow reef between Broaden Island and what's called Dark Point, or the Little Gibber, which is directly in line uh, with... Um, Dark Point and Broaden Island um, is a bridge uh, which is called the Sisters, a shallow rocky reef. Now before the ice melts there's no doubt in my mind that you could have walked over there quite comfortably. Uh, so that's, you know, they really might not have had to uh, paddle. But if they did have to paddle, they would have only had to paddle two kilometres anyway. Um, so I mean, I've always felt from the very first time I stepped foot on Broughton Island, which goes back, oh, gee, 1976, I think, um, I always felt that there was something that I didn't know, know. There's something I didn't know. Apart from the history of those who sail from around the world, the, the um, Chinese and the Greeks and the Italians, um, they're all out there. Um, and the French come in 1906, but there was... Far, I knew. I knew there was far more to it. And what I witnessed last week um, just confirmed my suspicions. Because, uh, And on, next time I go there, and for every time I go back to Broughton Island from now on, I'll think of it in a different way. Because normally, what the reason I went to Broughton Island was to catch fish and drink beer. Well, that's an <laughs> easy thing to do. But to, to think of it really as somewhere which was a real... Um, point in, in, um, for a, a growing Aboriginal community, that really gives you something, a depth of thought that I've never really had before. Yeah.
1: We're speaking with Stinker about uh, this archaeological dig on Broughton Island that has shown a lot of evidence of uh, Aboriginal people being there. So so can they speculate or, or is it too early yet to, to, to look at carbon dating and other evidence to suggest that they did walk across when the seas were much lower because there's a lot of evidence there before the last ice age that that people you know access places that are now well and truly underwater
4: yes well this is all i mean this has started the ball rolling this has now opened the doors it's and and really there's going to be a rush of information coming out of there now but look um, so and the carbon dating well that is in process as we speak but what i also like to tell you about is this Fishing trip that I went on last week. On the trip that I knew I'd catch nothing, the nothing fishing trip. (laughs) So I've gone out there and anchored in my um, uh, special spot, which is you know has just been so conductive over. But not in the conditions that I experienced last week. However, I'm happy. I'm happy out there. Bobbing up and down. The sea's beautiful. Um, you know, the, the whale boats are out there. There's the occasional slow whale going past. And then the most extraordinary thing happens, which seems to happen to me every time I get in pots. <laughs> Something extraordinary happens that's never ever happened to me before. And it was so peaceful, I was sort of half dozing off. I was sort of going into sort of siesta mode. <laughs> and then there was this almighty noise like you wouldn't believe it was like an avalanche and um, what had happened it was all these exploding fish um, it was like ha- a big hailstorm but the hailstones were like half as big as a house brick and it was about as big as a tennis court or maybe bigger right around my boat. It was erupting the water was, the water was simply erupting well I said, wow it actually gave me a bit of a fright <laughs> The first time I, when I first happened, when it started erupting, it's um, and the noise was quite deafening. So I've got a uh, my rod in, but I had no bait on it. So I threw an unweighted hook, I reckon probably six metres, that's all you could throw it, in the middle of this boiling mass. And I had immediate hook-up. So my rod's bent over like a, <laughs> or a bow, and the violin string is just, tight and this thing's zinging and I, I got a fair idea what it was but I really wanted to see it and anyway up come my old mate a salmon, it was a huge school of salmon that had surrounded me and I got one, only one before the school moved on and it moved on to about 40 metres out to sea so I could have up angered and chased the school but I thought oh no blow it, you know uh, it was just good to see a big, big school, and another school joined it. So it was about the size of a footy field of salmon just erupting, which is, oh, magnificent stuff. Anyway, that was enough for me. I pulled up the anchor, no snapper, no bite, exactly what I expected to be catch, no snapper. But anyway, I've gone back inside the green hut, and I've tossed out a lure, and I've got half a dozen really Stumping great tailor. so I end up with six Taylor and one salmon out of about ten million. <laughs> he must have been the luckiest salmon in Australia. Then he was in my esky, and all his mates are out there laughing. But I'm just about to leave out in front of the lighthouse, and up pops a whopping great seal, looked straight at me, clapped his hands, and took off. <laughs> It Ooh. looked like it escaped from the zoo. All I needed to do was throw in a beach ball, and I reckon I could have dang balanced it on its nose. You know <laughs> that?
1: Oh Well, I bet you're glad you went now.
4: Oh, look, I had a ball. I loved every minute of it. Actually, what I did do, and I haven't done it for a long time, I filleted the, the big tailor, which I suppose is a kilo and a half, and then I put flour on them, and I tried to remember how my mother used to cook the uh, tailor because tailor's not everybody's fair, but I used to love it as a kid. But I haven't eaten it for a long time. But anyway, I put flour on it and then I got hot oil, really hot oil. And then I put it in the hot oil until it was really, I cooked it really crunchy on the outside. And very very moist on the inside, and then uh, we cooked up some fried rice, and off we went for a big. We had a big fillet of tailor each, and it was beautiful.
1: Oh, I was be told to great. go
4: back and catch another
1: one. All right. Well, the last time you got the the tailor there, you turned them into those really interesting smoked tailor fish patties, which which that's right. B- yeah, sounded fantastic. Yep. So hopefully you got a few more in the fridge.
4: Well, I sort of eat them the next day. And, I, and, and uh, if I want more, I can go and catch more because the tail have been sitting in the same spot for, oh, gee, six weeks
1: now. Oh, that's fantastic. It's like going to the fridge. Hey, tight line, Stinker. Thanks for sharing your adventure.
0: <laughs> is, the Big Fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio.
1: It's the Big Fish, and I know all of you who fish would know about this, but a lot of people who don't fish wouldn't know that there are monsters lurking under their feet in the sand when they head down to any of our beaches on the New South Wales coast and and even in the metropolitan area of Sydney the northern beaches uh, where Alex Bellissimo plies his trade as a rock beach and estuary land-based fishing guide which is an incredible thing really catches so many fish but he's a real master at catching those beach worms and recently put out a YouTube clip on his technique here we go Oh, yes. Beautiful.
3: Woo, you got to pick your worms. Here we go. Another good quality worm. Mate, at this rate, I'll be able to get 6 to 10 within 15 minutes, I reckon. There was a big one there. There it goes, look. Very hard to get. Very hard to get. Okay. There we go. Enough worms for a session. Beautiful. That was a decent whiting bite. Might have baited me. So that could be the problem about using heavier sinkers. They use the weight of the sinker, barely bite the bait, and they use the weight of your sinker to tear the bait off the hook. They also use your rod tip that's bending over as well. So it's like a tug of war tight on this side, tight on that side, it's only barely grabbed the bait. It hasn't grabbed the whole hook, it's only just barely grabbed the bait and it tears it off. And that's why sometimes you get baited. So don't just think naturally, oh, I got baited it was a small fish. Not necessarily true. Oh, yeah. Woo, big brim. Oh, big Oh yes. Woo!
1: <laughs> Alex Bellissimo, that was a great episode. That was a great episode. That was a stonk tar wine, close to 40 centimetres. They're amazing, aren't they? A lot of people don't like the little ones. They've got a very small size limit, 20 centimetres, and they're quite mushy. But when you get them up around that 40, uh, we caught one at Swansea that big once on the, on the live worms. Uh, they taste just like a snapper. They just taste like a snapper, don't they?
5: Oh, they taste They taste very nice. Mate. By the way, day, mate. Thanks for having us on your oh, show. Good mate. to
1: have you back. Actually, when you think about it, they look like a snapper, only they're silver. And they've got that black lining of the stomach, which is a bit weird. But they eat the same stuff, don't they? They eat crustaceans. They eat worms. They eat that sort of clean sand food.
5: Well, they do. That's exactly right. They're also quite common off the rocks as well. And the reason why they get that black lining is because they do do ingest a fair bit of weed. Any of those species that have a black lining tend to have um, uh, part of their diet, a little bit of weed in their diet.
1: Ah, like your ludric and your mullet, yeah. uh,
5: And and your uh, rock blackfish? Yes, they do, Uh, they do. You read movies, stuff like that.
1: They do, right. yeah. I'd never thought of that. Geez, you, you know your fish. Uh, Alex Bellissimo is, is a fantastic beach fisherman, and we we won't talk about rock fishing too much because a lot of people, if you don't know, don't go. You know, you've really got to be uh, experienced. But anyone can fish off the beach, but a lot of people wouldn't know what's lurking under the sand. And I never forget uh, my mate Dorian Mode and I worming on on Terrigal Beach once, and these English tourists were walking along with their rented surfboards. And we pulled out a good one. Well, Dorian did. He's, he's a bit better than I am, and he pulled out this big beach worm. And this bloke looked at us and he said, "What's that? What's that thing?" And I said, "It's a beach worm, mate. I said, show show him the nippers on it. So you've got the big jaws." And he said, crikey. He said, are they in the sand? I said, yes, mate. They often come up out of the sand and grab English surfers by the leg and pull them off their boards, <laughs> consume them, just like the sand worms in the science fiction movie Dune. He said, oh, I'm not going in the water. He said, You've got the sharks and the jellyfish. And,
5: the, and now you've got the worms.
1: And you've, now you've got the killer worms. But uh, <laughs> take us through your worming neck technique, Alex, because you're very, very good at it. You're very good at it.
5: Uh, look, look. I like to use a salted bait. You don't have to use salted bait, just something that's smelly. But a salted bait is, is concentrate, right? So because it's concentrated and it's quite tight, it tends to last a lot longer than, say, a uh, pilchard. You can throw a pilchard in a sock or a stocking, right? But if you throw a salted um, bit of uh, pilchard, pilchard's got its high, high oil content. Anything that's a high oil content releases that smell. Um, so you know, back in the day, they used to use rotten fish and rotten stingrays and stuff, mate. And I reckon it caused a lot of divorces, right? So
0: very stinky. I
5: reckon stick to your salted
1: baits, right? I tell you what does work really well is is tin kippers. If you want, well, kippers, you know, breakfast kippers. If you want to have the feed of those on toast, like the English, and then whack them into your sock, they have a lot of oil and they really bring them up.
5: Well, now uh, what I'm using, I'm actually using a sock, right? Right, right. And the sock I'm using is preferably a thin, a thin sock, right? So try and steer away from, say, footy type socks, like thin, like, like thick woolen socks, because when when the worm grabs the bait, grabs your sock, they can then taste the bilge. So, and they got two little black little fangs, like little pincers, right? Uh, you know, like an ant, like a bull ant. Oh, they'll bite you too. And they grab. They grab the sock, see?
1: And I love now, the way you squeeze your sock to put a bit of juice in the water to make them pop up. And all you're looking for are these little Vs in the sand, these, their little head. That's exactly you, right. You don't see the head. You just see this V shape going out from the head, and you'll see lots of them pop up. And then you look closely and you'll see the ones that are too small and the ones that are big. That's
5: exactly right, yes. You can You can actually choose the beach worm that you want. So you'll see a bigger V in the sand. And as you as you indicated, the V in the sand is the water parting on the on the beachworm. And you'll notice a beachworm when the, the V in the sand only appears for one or two seconds or even less, where a seashell or a bit of grit will be continual. Um sometimes you'll get some some, some uh extra enthusiastic worms and they'll just keep waving their head out like a cobra, literally. But <laughs> but the vast majority of them won't do that. they as as you mentioned, right, they'll just You'll only see them for a short period, right? and you can tell by the size of the V that the larger the V in the sand, which is the water parting from the object, which is the beach worm, right, the larger the worm is. So I tend to try and go, obviously, for those larger beach worms. But, but look, I'm not saying only go for the large beach worms. Go for the smaller ones, because the smaller ones can often be easier to catch, and you'll find... You'll find that some of those worms there are a lot more enthusiastic than others. There'll be ones that are a bit timid. You'll find others that are less timid and go for the most enthusiastic one. You know, so... That's my advice as well. Yeah. Worm. Go for the most enthusiastic one. Don't go for the one that's uh, not so enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah. People treat beachworms. All the beachworms all the same. Some of them are a lot more enthusiastic than others.
1: So. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. You can hear those ones cheering. It yeah. is just great fun. Even just doing that is a game within a game. And then, of course, the great fish you catch, the whiting, the brim, the jewfish, the tarwine, as, as we mentioned. Practice sustainable fishing get a few of these for bait one worm will give you uh, you know four or five baits and uh, happy days you know they're they're in good numbers
5: well that's exactly right fish smart keep your worms cool after you've caught them remember that they're a a cool southern ocean creature right uh well you know the sand that they live in is generally a lot cooler than the atmosphere especially in summertime keep them as cool as possible if you have them in water keep changing the water. If you put them in sand, put them in, in, in a shaded environment, and you'll find your worms will last quite a long time. You know, so take care of them, and you'll have live worms, and you'll have better fishing.
1: <laughs> oh, before you go, what's biting for our Sydney listeners, Northern Beaches Sydney listeners?
5: Oh, well, well uh, last night I had uh, tailor and salmon uh, off the beaches. Um, there's rock blackfish. There's some big rock blackfish around uh, off the rocks, um, up to that sort of three and a half kilo size. Um, there's some small snapper, um, up to about sort of 34, 35 centimetres. There's the typical run of Trevally at this time of year. There's Ludrick. There's good numbers of Ludrick uh, off the rocks and in the estuary as well. So Middle Harbour and North Harbour is producing quite well for Ludrick. There's, um, still, there's still a run of kings around too, would you believe? There's still some kings around up to about 68 centimetres. So you've got kings, brim, Ludrick in the harbour. Uh, and, and salmon, and you've got off the beaches, you've got still some whiting off the beach in some areas. Um, you've got brim, and you've got tailor and salmon. Now, the, the tail, it's a very, very late time. August is, is quite late for um, Taylor, but they're still around. Uh, some big, fat salmon around, and as I mentioned, the grover, uh, the ludric, the rock blackfish, uh, off, off the ocean rocks and valley and, and small
1: snapper. I love a nice yeah. slab of Taylor for breakfast. Lo- lovely grilled Taylor. And they're really on off the beaches around uh, the central coast of Newcastle as well. So it's a, a very good run this year. I'm
5: just about to have some Taylor for breakfast right now.
1: i oh, got to love it. You'll live forever. Good on you, mate. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Cheers. Fashion
6: worms. Fishing worms. Everybody's wishing they had fishing worms. Find them in the garden, turn over a rock, slip them in your sandwich, put them in your sock. That's fishing worms, fishing worms. Well, my big sister, she don't care for my fishing worms. Big ones, little ones, they scare her to death. Make a chocolate shake I dropped a couple in the blender And now she's looking at me With bated breath I'm eating fish and worms Fish and worms Everybody's wishing they had fish and worms Do your English homework Underline a word Circle direct object and transitive verb With a fish and worm Fish and worm Wrap around a corkscrew, twist them round some twine, take them to the hell spot so they can unwind. That's fish and worm, fish and worm. is wishing they had fish and worms Find them on the sidewalk Crispy as a chip When your aunt comes over Chop them in the dip For some fish and worms Fish and worms Find them in the backyard Underneath some leaves Make them little dresses Just leave off the sleeves That's fish and worm, Fish and worms Well, I like everything You can think about fish and worms Gushy, gushy, gushy ones, ones that wiggle and squish. There's only one thing I don't like doing with fish and worms. That is, of course, I hate to catch fish. I hate fish, just fish and worms. Fish and worms. Everybody's wishing they had fish and worms. Fish and worms. Fish and worms. Fish and worms.